Hi, welcome back to JaffeWoodwinds.com, and I'm Ed Jaffe, and today I'm interviewing a, a dear friend and someone who's been uh, one of my heroes in the music industry uh, for many years. Uh, Tom Rainier is truly one of the greatest musicians in our country. He can cover any type of musical situation as a keyboardist and as a clarinetist and saxophonist, as a composer, as an arranger. Uh, he's really a, a renaissance musician in the truest sense. Uh, just a brief synopsis of some of the things Tom has done in his career. Uh, he's been involved in huge amount of films, uh, in film scoring, in TV shows, in award shows, in record dates, playing with uh, some of the greatest singers in the world, including Barbara Streisand, and today he's Tony Bennett's accompanist as well. Uh, the TV shows he's played on and, and been involved with uh, in writing arrangements include Dancing with the Stars, Family Guy, The Simpsons. Uh, he's been a mainstay at the Academy Awards for many years, the Grammy Awards, the Emmy Awards, Golden Globes. And as a jazz artist, he's played with so many of the greatest uh, jazz musicians in our country for many years, including Terry Gibbs and Buddy DeFranco and their sextet. George Coleman, Lou Tobacken, Dave Pike, uh, Eddie Daniels, Pete Chrisley, just to name a few. Uh, Tom is equally brilliant as a pianist, as he is, as you'll hear later on, as a jazz clarinetist and as a saxophonist. And he also is, has a wonderful hobby. He's a phenomenal photographer. And if you go to the website that we have cited on the text, you'll see some of Tom's work in that area as well. So, Tom. Thanks for hanging out today. Thank and, you very much. And Thank you. sharing this, this time and also for years of friendship. And I really uh, have learned much from you. And uh, I think our listeners will as well in this interview. Wow. Thank um, you come from a very musical family. Uh, you grew up in Chicago. And your dad, Lou, was a uh, wonderful reed player and mm -hmm. multi-readist as well. So can you tell us how you you know, began your musical career and and how this multi-dimensional approach to being a world-class jazz pianist, arranger, composer, and jazz clarinetist and saxophonist began. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, basically, uh, I guess what I, what I remember is I started picking out tunes at the piano when I was just really, really young. I don't know how old. And... Uh, that went on for quite a while, and in the meantime, I would hear my dad uh, warming up and uh, practicing before he'd go to a job, for example. And we always listened to a lot of music in the house, and my dad had uh, a lot of Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman and Buddy DeFranco records, as a matter of fact. Um, so there was music all the time. My mom was a trained singer, and she played the piano. And so... Uh, when I was 10 years old, I, I started late, but when I was 10 years old, I convinced them that I, to get piano lessons for me. And, um, and then when I was 12, um, I kept begging my dad for clarinet lessons, and he kind of, he was a, a bit reluctant, uh, but he, I started studying clarinet with him. So... Yeah, I just interrupt, he, he was a working... Musician. He was a working musician in Chicago, and around the time I was born, 
he started getting interested in photography. And um, one thing led to another, and he always played. He, he, he played really to the, to the uh, end of his life, as a matter of fact. But during the Chicago years, before we came to California, he um, made a transition and became a full-time photographer. So by the time we got out here, he was he was doing that full time. I see. And he was and he would play on the weekends, for example. Club dates, casual. Exactly, yeah. Um, whereas in Chicago, he was he was more of a full time player, and um, he he was he was more successful as a player than than he told me. I found out years later. He, uh, uh, I don't know if I've. I've told you this, or if it's a well, you can edit it out if it's not of interest. <laughs> but uh, at one point around 1948, he worked about a year with Jimmy and Marion McPartland. Oh yes, you did tell me this. And, and they were a big deal at the time in in, sure. the, in the not only in Chicago but in the jazz in the jazz world. And years later, I was in New York working, and I went to see Marion McPartland and to meet her. She was playing at a. Hotel. The Hickory House, maybe? No, it was, um, it started with a B, Bettelman's Bar or something in a hotel. She was playing a single. Right. And when I got there, she was uh, on a break. And I went up to introduce myself. And before I said anything, she says, I know you. This was in 1975. She hadn't seen my dad since 1948. And I said, well, you know my dad. And introduce myself and this and that. She said, and she said something that, that uh, really stuck with me. She says, you know, in those days, he was the jazz clarinet player in Chicago. He would have never told me that. He was on the downbeat pole. He had a lot of notoriety. Wow. He was getting featured a lot in different radio programs. Uh, Dave Garraway was back there back then. Wow. Loved my dad. So there was a lot that as close as I was to my dad, which was really close, he was not one to boast about. So it was interesting to me to find that out. Anyway, I started studying classical piano. I started playing the clarinet, and then the saxophone came later. And then I would go on, uh, he would take me on, on, on what we call casuals out in California, I guess they're club dates back east, playing for dancing and stuff. And I would sit next to him and I'd listen, and I'd learn tunes. And that's kind of how I started playing, uh, improvising and like that. And um, study, Kept studying through college. I got a bachelor's in composition, and uh, went on did from you, there. Did you have other teachers, private teachers, on the clarinet and saxophone? No. At that time? No. Um, it, the the focus for me was always pretty much the piano, and uh, I I played clarinet in the wind ensemble and in the orchestra, and I played right. saxophone in the stage band. Um, and, and were you set on piano being your main instrument? Uh, 
in, in, in the music yeah. industry? Yeah. Okay. And, um, and was your dad encouraging and mother uh, on that? Very much so. They both were, were very, very encouraging. Um, I think at first my dad was, as, as any father would be with his child, and, and my mom too, he was concerned that if I was going to be a musician, I'd be able to make a living. And he felt very strongly that if you played the piano, that gave you a lot more options uh, than if you just played the clarinet and the saxophone. And I think that's probably still true in, in a lot of ways today, because there's a lot more things you can, a lot more places and different kinds of employment you can have. Um, but once I started on the clarinet, he, he was with me 100%. And... Um, and what was your focus on the clarinet? Was it jazz clarinet or classical clarinet? Well, it was, it was certainly classical at first, and then um, uh, all, the, all the traditional, you know, the cloche and all the things that we all study. And, um, and that just continued. Uh, and then I think when I was in college, uh, I, I managed to, uh, well, I played in wind ensemble, but I also played in orchestra. And uh, that was really amazing. We had some really good conductors. We had a very good orchestra in college. And uh, so that was a great experience. Right. And who were you listening to musically during these formative years through college? Who were, who were the musical heroes that you were focusing well, on? Well, at, at first when I started out, like I said, I was listening to, uh, to Benny Goodman a lot. And uh, that was probably my first... Uh, inspiration, making me want to be a musician. There was something about that that music that just immediately kind of resonated. Now, Benny was a hero certainly to kids who grew up in the 30s and 40s, right. 50s, but now you're right. you're a, a full generation beyond right. that. Yeah. And, and I also, Benny was the first yeah. thing, you know, what was it about the, Benny's music? Now, to, to young players who are listening today, you know, they're not going to hear Benny much on the radio. Uh, even jazz radio is not, are not playing that very much. But what is it about that music and his, his expression all that uh, really turned you on? Well, I have, to, I have to clarify, when I say I was listening to Benny Goodman, the 78s that my dad had were all small group stuff, small combo stuff for right. the most part. Right. So it wasn't so much a, the sound of a big band that I was that attracted me some uh, I mean I certainly like them but it was something about the way it was something about first of all his sound that just uh, it's it's pretty hard to describe but it was just immediately like that's incredible I love that I love the fluency I love the way he swung I love Teddy Wilson who was on most of those records and I love the spirit of that that music, the, the feeling of that music. But it's, it was especially his sound, I think. And, uh, and then uh, we started listening to other things. We, we certainly listened to some Artie Shaw, and we would listen to a lot of Buddy DeFranco, which, which was so totally different in conception. Uh, and I, at, at first, I certainly didn't understand it the way I felt like I understood Benny, but as as time went on, I got more into it. I would say you did. Well, <laughs> and we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later in the interview with your relation with uh, yeah, Buddy. Yeah. Um, uh, so 
did you have sights on being a professional musician by the time you got to college? Well, by the time I got to college, I was actually making a living. You were as you a player. Working. Yeah, I started playing jobs really, uh, actually on my own when I was about sixteen, and um, solo piano gigs. Solo piano. I had a little trio. I remember in high school that we used to play, whatever dances, fashion shows, any uh -huh. anything, uh -huh. and. Uh, yeah, by the time I got to college, I was I was pretty much working, and uh, that kind of put me at odds sometimes with the schedules of the the concerts that you were required to do. And but and then what happened was um, I was studying composition. That was my major. I was I was studying piano still, um, and out of college, uh, actually when I was still in college. Uh, I got a call from a friend of mine who was working a summer job at a parks and recreation place, and there was a vocal group rehearsing there for a summer job at Disneyland. And he called me and he said, you know, this group has got a three-month job at Disneyland, and they're looking for a pianist. So I went up and I auditioned, and I got the job. And I forget how old I was. I think I was 18 18 or 19. And uh, so I started working at Disneyland. And that group, the first edition of it was three months of the summer, and then they reformed the group. And I wound up staying there, um, I'm trying to think, about three years at Disneyland. Wow. And uh, met so many of the other musicians that were working there. And at that time at Disneyland, they had all kinds of bands and groups. Tons of music. Yeah, and they'd bring in big bands. And they would, and they, they would also bring in big bands. That's right. Yeah, including, uh, including uh, Benny, Benny Goodman. Goodman. Yeah, right. I mean, as a matter some, of fact, there's some YouTubes up. Uh, yeah, with that. and I got to hear. Uh, well, even before that, my mom and dad would take me to the park during the summer to hear the bands. I remember hearing Count Basie's band. Uh, I can still remember how that sounded. So. That was kind of the real starting of the career, and then I, I started working on a master's degree, and I, by that time I had been in college a long time, and I was already working, and so I, I didn't yeah, finish the master's degree. Yeah. 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 Did you have any aspirations for ever being a professional uh, reed player, uh, given the fact of how proficient you become on clarinet and saxophone? Did you ever even pick up flute as well and think, maybe I, I could do a double I, I did start the flute. I want, I want to go back, because I don't know if I answered your question. There was never, um, just want to backtrack for a second. There was this whole idea of being a musician professionally was kind of never a question with me. It just sort of happened. Um, that summer that I got the job at Disneyland working, as I said, I'd been working some jobs. I was all set to go to work at a music store. Uh, I was learning how to repair instruments because I had to do something, and I wasn't making enough money. Uh, wasn't working enough to make a, a, that much money, and then this job came, so it never was something that was a, a, like a conscious light bulb went on. It was just something that one thing led to another, and pretty soon you're doing it. And as far as the woodwinds, I did learn to play the flute. Uh, I took it up, and I, uh, a couple guys that I had worked with, older guys, showed me some things about it, and I really loved playing it. 
and played it kind of off and on, but I never really thought about being a professional woodwind player. I was, uh, I was working playing keyboards, and um, that was enough to try to take care of that and keep that going. So, but you, but somehow you've managed to keep up the wind playing all these years uh, on a, on a very high level. So, I well, mean, thank you. How, how does how does I, I, I did give up the flute. I stopped. I stopped that at some point. I was, I took a. I remember taking a, a pit job uh, in a in a Broadway show, uh, and they had a. I'm trying to remember what the show was, but I was playing lead alto, and and oh, I know what it was. It was Dreamgirls. Oh, okay. you probably played that. Yeah, show, I, was, right? I subbed on that show in New York. And the so original, the and particular it, orchestration yeah. that we had was three saxophones and. It's all these Motown music, and you're really blowing, you know. Yeah. And, and second act, the, the tune right before the finale, has a big flute solo. That's on the first alto book. And every night I sweated that solo. I made it through it, and I but I thought to myself, uh, this is I, I can't. What am I trying to prove here? So yeah. so the flute went away finally. But and and answer your question though. Uh, it's been really frustrating it, at times. I've, I've thought about stopping it, but I love it too much to stop. So I kind of got to cut myself some slack, and you yeah. do the best you can. Um, and as, you, as the listeners will hear during the course of our interview, uh, Tom is just not uh, a, a once-in-a-while uh, clarinet or saxophonist. He really can play, and... I mean, I mean, you've stunned me. I mean, I've heard you play alto. I've heard tenor now. Uh, well, thank and, you. And it's 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 fairly unbelievable that someone who can play piano on your level can play the other woodwinds and toss it off like that. I mean, well, I, I wish I, we, appreciate I it. wish I could do the same on piano <laughs> at the level you play yours. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. But uh, now you you were you know you came out of college you working in Disneyland, you're starting to enter the professional world. But as we all know, um, and especially even here in L.A., even though you sort of grew up here, mm -hmm. uh, moving here at a young age, uh, entering the professional world is not easy for anyone at any time. There has to be some connection or someone or some people who help you. Uh, was there any one person or a few people who opened doors for you uh, into the higher level of professional music making. I was playing with a, um, a, a big band, as a matter of fact, and we had a steady uh, Monday night at a club, and the drummer and I became good friends, and uh, about a year or two later, he went with Helen Reddy. And uh, Helen Reddy at the time had a really big career going. And uh, one thing led to another, and their piano player quit. He recommended me. So that was another step. So I joined Helen for about two years. Um, I had worked with Joey Bishop before that, and a friend of mine recommended me for that job. So a lot of times it's friends that recommend you, right. as, as right. you know. It, it, the networking <clears throat> comes through recommendations from Absolutely. your peers. Yeah. I, mean, you, you, I mean, contractors will hire you and you'll get <clears throat> cold, but... <clears throat> Perhaps even more important are how your colleagues perceive you exactly. and, and your abilities and yeah. your work ability. Uh, it's usually the other musicians that, that get you started, and, and, and a lot of times on your own instrument, people that recommend you. So right. 
after I left Helen Reddy, I actually went back to Disneyland, uh, played for a while, and I started trying to meet some of the guys that were doing studio work, even though it wasn't really a, it, it wasn't that conscious an effort on my part to try to get studio work. I never really thought I could do that. But I thought, um, I want to see if I can at least meet some of the guys. And the first keyboard player that I met, unbelievably great musician, Mike Lang. And I remember going up and hanging out. He invited me to come to a session. And I went up and to the session. It was a 9 a.m. single, I think. And I just hung out and I kind of watched what he was doing and watched everything about the session. And he asked me, he says, can you follow a conductor? And I well, I think I can. I have. I have been, but I mean, you know, in this setting, uh, you know I, what the answer was. Uh, but the answer has to be yes. No, the answer is also yes on the number one train. I can follow. <laughs> yeah, the there you go. Yeah, yeah. I should have thought. So uh, nothing happened for a while, and then all of a sudden, um, I get a call from a contractor, and they're doing a TV special on a Sunday morning. And uh, it turns out that Mike Lang couldn't do it and recommended me. And he took a big chance on me because he really hadn't heard me do any studio work. I think he had heard some records that I was on. Anyway, uh, the TV special, Helen Reddy was on the TV special, my former boss. So I saw her again, and, and there were a whole bunch of different acts, and it was a, it was a big orchestra, as I remember, and it was all the guys that do all that stuff. I was really scared, uh, but I went in and I gave it everything I could, and uh, the arranger was Billy Byers, Wow! and the contractor was a guy named Bill Hughes. Both these people, unfortunately, have passed away, but uh, Billy Byers said to Bill Hughes, who's the piano player? And, uh, and Bill said, well, his name is Tom Ranier, he's a new guy, and he says, well, we should keep him. He liked, he liked what he heard. Thank, but thank Billy, you. Billy, <laughs> Billy, and I, I, there's no one I respect more. Absolutely, and uh, I think I've probably told you this, but I'll, I'll tell the story for the, for the taping. But he, uh, as it turns out, was in the Army Air Force Band with my father. And in 1944, and wrote some arrangements for a secretary on the bass, because they found out she could sing, to sing with the big band. That was my mom, and that's how oh she met God. my dad. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. It, so it's it a came full circle. Truly a small world. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this contractor Bill Hughes turned out to be uh, turned out to be a great friend, uh, but also uh, was he he would champion people that were trying to come up, and he did that with me. He put me on a lot of jobs, uh, took chances on me. Uh, putting me in certain situations that he just had a feeling I would be able to do. And fortunately, everything went went well, and, and that's how the studio work started. Now, what about the, your jazz uh, voice? Who were the people you were listening to, and how did you start meeting and working with other jazz artists? Well, when I was in still in high school, I was, getting, I was starting to listen to as much jazz as I could, and... Uh, one of the records and one of the artists that completely turned me around was Oscar Peterson. 
uh, I remember sending away for a subscription to Downbeat, and you could pick out an album, get a free album with your subscription. And <laughs> I happened to pick Night Train by the Oscar Peterson Trio, and I really wore it out. I wore it till the grooves you can't play it anymore. And, uh, and then Bill Evans... first real into Miles Davis. I sort of couldn't get with it. I didn't really understand what the attraction was. Which period of Miles was that? It would have been the kind of the early 60s when he started to oh, change. Oh, okay. And uh, the, the bands with Herbie. Yeah, and Wayne Shorter and yeah, all. Yeah. And I was kind of more into their traditional stuff, but later on I came, of course, to love it. So I was listening to everything I could, and uh, certain things always, I think this is true for everybody, you know, you find certain things that resonate with you, whether they're, whatever the style is and whoever the artists are. Right. And you start out, the normal process is you start out imitating. And right. uh, then hopefully out of that, it all goes into the, computer and you right. come up with something that's hopefully yours and original. Yeah. Uh, so Oscar Peterson was sort of the initial yeah. influence and, yeah. and then Bill Evans of mm -hmm. course is there. And, um, mm -hmm. and on the, uh, in, in listening to music of that period, uh, who were the reed players that impressed you the most or was still resonating with you? Well, they, there was a lot of Buddy DeFranco and that started, like I said, at home. Um, I started to really like, uh, I remember getting a Charlie Parker record, which it's hard to imagine, but when I was growing up, there weren't many available. And Verve had a, uh, the Verve label had a, a compilation called The Essential Charlie Parker. And I got right. that record and I, again, that was like an epiphany hearing that. Um, and then uh, like a lot of tenor players, I. Early on, I heard Woody Herman's band with Sound Mystico, and I, <laughs> he just became one of my absolute favorites. I tried to follow his career. And then later, Mike Brecker, of course. And, but these are, I'm kind of telling you the highlights. You know, along with that, I love Train, of course, and Joe Henderson, and all the guys, you know. I, one thing uh, that, I don't know how valuable this is to mention, but as much as I listened to the piano players, there was something about horn players, and I guess because I could play the horns, 
that I related in a jazz conception lies more to the horn lines and tried to incorporate that in the piano playing. Interesting. Now, over the years, and this is important, I think, to all our listeners, everyone knows, every horn player knows that playing piano is essential, mm -hmm. important, not only from just an expression point of view of an understanding harmony, mm -hmm. but uh, in, in certainly having an affinity for playing classical music on the piano and playing and improvising on the piano in, a, in contemporary styles. Uh, it can influence your horn playing greatly. Absolutely. Now you ha you're looking at it from a piano player's point of view and how much the horn playing influenced you. So what, what would you say to, to uh, young players, maybe players who are in college, who are reed players, maybe multiple wind players who are thinking of a career in doubling, but you know, as we all know in college, you're given all these courses, and you wanna if you're if you wanna be a player, you wanna practice your axes. You bet. And the other courses take a back seat. And yeah. as I've learned just from living now uh, many years uh, and having been out of school many years, a lot of those other courses that I sort of boohooed, just wanted to get through, just get the passing grade, were maybe as essential or even more essential than just. You bet. going into the woodshed and practicing. You bet. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't realize that till many years later. Uh, but how can uh, the piano influence the horn, and how can the horn influence the piano in, in specifics so that we can help these younger players? I think, first of all, um, in, in terms of the piano influencing the horns, uh, Everyone needs some sort of method or methodology, mechanism to be able to hear harmony and to hear what goes over it and what works, what, what doesn't necessarily work, what works better than others. When I've taught in the past, um, I've always recommended that people learn to play the piano, but also one of the techniques that I used to use is I would have them play a chord and I'd show them a voicing or voicings and put the sustain pedal down. Take the instrument and play over it so you could hear it. Um, Imp improvise over it? Improvise or over it or play, play a line scales. over it or whatever yeah. whatever they're working on, but play over that so you could hear it. Um, the other aspect of it, in the reverse, is for pianists especially, um, is to, you know, there's a, there's a tendency to play, and this is of course every instrument, to play things that are idiomatic to your instrument. It especially happens with pianists, uh, and especially if you listen to the old, uh, lots of the older generation people. They'll play things figures that, that lay well pianistically. And that's all fine. There's no, there's no right or wrong to any of this. But what I like to teach is I like to teach people to get out of that. Because what tends to happen is, and this has to do with arranging too, sometimes you wind up writing what you can play. Sometimes you play things that lay well without really being connected to them. So you're kind of just playing something to fill in a space. But there's not necessarily a connection. But it feels good. Right. So uh, somewhere in there, 
I think is a is an equation to get out of that and to uh, and this has to do with what you were saying about the other courses uh, I believe real strongly that a musician should be a very well-rounded person not only listening to jazz for example listening to all kinds of music reading all kinds of things looking at art um, because every single thing that we're talking about in that in that realm will influence your music. And the other thing that was brought out yesterday and when you did the panel discussion was I think uh, Gene Cipriano was talking about is to be passionate. So that's really the genesis of everything when you when you think about it. Uh, you hear something that attracts you, and you want to figure out what it is. For my piano students, I used to encourage them to listen to horn players in light of what we were just talking about, but also to broaden their horizons. Same thing with horn players. If, it's a, if, if I'm teaching a saxophone player, I'm going to want him to listen to trumpet players, you know, not just other saxophone players, pianists, guitarists. Right. Because it's, it's all part of the same thing, but it all helps... A person, I think, to establish their own, their own voice, their own conception. Right, having, being more flexible. Absolutely. In that way. Uh, just a little anecdote. Um, when you mentioned horn uh, sax players or reed players listening to trumpet players, that brought back um, a conversation I had many years ago uh, when I had a chance to meet and, and interview Al Galadora, mm. one of the greatest sure. woodwind virtuosi. Ever. And uh, he told me growing up in New Orleans, one of his first jobs was playing, I think, at a local movie theater. And movie theaters in those days had live music accompanying yeah. mm -hmm. the, the uh, movies, because the movies in those days weren't talkies. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the, it was a, like a quintet, I believe. And the other horn player was a, an older man who was a trumpet player, who apparently was very good. And Al said he learned to articulate from that trumpet player, and he would practice out of the mm. Arbin book, oh, wow. and learning how to double tongue, because the trumpet player was doing it was next doing to him, it. and he showed, and of course, there's no one who had a better double tongue than Al oh, Galador. So I mean, but there's uh, the thing that we can learn from other instruments, and certainly, uh, you know, everyone who's a music major takes piano, whether you're a piano major, or right. if you're an instrumentalist, you, you take piano for non-pianists. Uh, and that is, it's so essential. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, I, my first instrument was piano. My mom taught it to me, but I didn't pursue it. I went right to the clarinet and, you know, the sax and then the flute and all that. But now I'm actually starting to study piano again oh, and, and realize yeah. uh, on so many levels, uh, you know, being able to, you know, uh, really pl play changes well. And even to improvise, even if you don't have the chops, you're not going to have Bud Powell-like chops in your right hand, but just to it, Yeah, blow, it doesn't it, matter, right. That's it right. somehow influences what you play on Absol the horn. Absolutely. It really does. Absolutely. Just like singing, uh, improvising uh, a solo with singing to the chord changes influences what you actually play on the horn. Absolutely. Uh, but there is something, and it's hard, I don't know if I can articulate it, but uh, you are one of the few people who can demonstrate it both ways. Uh, but playing the piano really helps your single line playing on saxophone, clarinet, or flute, or mm -hmm. whatever, uh, because you are more sensitive, like you say, to the harmony, but also 
in a sense to the comping, what a, what a, a pianist would comp it, makes you rhythmically sensitive yes, to absolutely. it. So yeah. it's, it's such a win-win. Uh, it so, really is, yeah. So for the young uh, and for even more experienced doublers listening, uh, you know, when you want to put down the horn and give yourself a break because the chops are tired, it's not bad to have a keyboard no, to go. Go to, go to the piano. A lot of your career has also been based around your ability as an orchestrator and a composer. Um, you mentioned you were a composition major in college, but where did you learn to start orchestrating and arranging, especially for uh, commercial sessions, jazz sessions? How, how did that evolve? Well, uh, when I was in college, uh, actually before I was in college, I think of when this started. I, I think I was about, I, I, actually I know because I started driving right about then. It was 15 and a half. But my dad was working at uh, what was then North American Aviation. Became Rockwell. They did all the, they built the Apollo actually when they went to the moon, uh, amongst other things. But there was a guy there um, who was a projectionist. And when the executives would come in, he this guy would run the projector and show these guys these movies. And while the movie was going, he would be working on music. He was he was studying composition and arranging. <laughs> so my dad knew pretty much everybody at work because he was head of photography. And this man's name was Jack Doherty. And so they got to talking one day. And he said, uh, you know, my son really wants to learn how to write music. And Jack said, well, bring him over. He lived, Jack lived in the Hollywood Hills. So we went up there, and Jack was so kind, he took me through the equivalent of college harmony and theory and counterpoint in about six months. How old were you at this point? 16. And I would go up there on a Saturday, and I'd spend all day Saturday with him. And uh, he was great. And, and he started me orchestrating... And uh, he was studying with somebody who had taught Nelson Riddle, as a matter of fact. And 
the lessons became, after about a year, kind of direct. What he was studying, he would show me. And so that really served me well. And then when I was in college, um, I was writing for our jazz band, and I started a, what I call the studio band at that point. And it was basically a big band with strings, French horns, expanded rhythm section. I was writing all the, the music for it. And... Um, and then the, the way life kind of took me, I started playing more at that point. And, uh, but once I got into studio work um, as a keyboardist, uh, there were certain people I worked for who wound up uh, you know, hiring me to, to orchestrate or to write arrangements or whatever the case was. And uh, probably the most work that I've done in that setting was uh, on Dancing with the Stars, as a matter of fact. We had a wonderful guy, Harold Wheeler, um, who I know you know, yes. originally from New York. <clears throat> Actually, originally from uh, St. Louis and Washington, D.C., but in New York. He right. worked for years and years. And very early on, he, even before we did Dancing with the Stars, I was working with him on some TV shows, and uh, he needed some help, and he asked me if I wrote. And... Uh, I wound up doing about, actually Dan Higgins and I did most of the writing, plus Harold, of course, for the Dancing with the Star show. We were at a rehearsal, and it was just he and I. And uh, we had a lot of downtime, and he was writing something, and he looked at me at one point, and he says, do you, do you orchestrate, do you arrange? And I said, yeah. So I didn't think too much about it. About 10 minutes went by, and he handed me a blank sheet of score paper, and he said, Here's a play on, and it was about five bars. Here's the instrumentation. He said, uh, I'll play rehearsal piano. Why don't you go downstairs? We were at the Pantages Theater, which is a theater here in Hollywood. No piano, and he said, orchestrate it for me. So I did. It took about uh, 20 minutes, I think it was, and I brought it back to him, and he looked at it. He said, okay. He said, here's another one. And he gave me about five that afternoon to do. Little cues. Little cues, very short cues. Mm -hmm. And that started everything. And the next time we did a TV show, he said, I need some, uh, I need such and such, such, such. And he knew that he could trust me to come through with what was required and it would be the right style, it'd be, the craft of it would be, you know, done. Uh, well, or competently, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then that really evolved. And Dancing with the Stars became a lot of fun because a lot of times we'd have to do plans that were in a certain style. Uh, they would have theme weeks. One week was James Bond music. You know, all the dancers were dancing to James Bond themes. <laughs> so we had to write in the style of James Bond. Same thing as being a studio player, like uh, right. when they ask you to do something in the style of... Right. And it became a lot of fun, and he would farm a lot of stuff out to me. And uh, we didn't even have to talk too much about it. He'd say, this is such and such, I need it to be like this. Okay, and you do it, you know. So it became a, a lot of fun. But that idea, though, that uh, you can learn from whatever your circumstances, I think is really important. And also something that related to an earlier interview I did with Dan Higgins, uh, when we were talking about the future of doubling and, and Dan was saying, you know, there are different ways you can do it, but 
being having a number of um, things in the fire. Like for instance, he was in Dan's case, he was a wonderful multi-readist. Yes, he was an arranger composer. Yeah, he could copy. He could improvise. You know, it's pretty much of, nothing he can't do. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, but 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 the point is also that you're bringing to the table more than just being a competent player, and here you are, obviously already a very competent pianist, and now you're being asked to arrange. You studied composition in school. You also know how to play a saxophone and clarinet at a high level. So in your arranging and composing, you're sensitive to that, and you know how to write for these instruments in a more intimate way. Even if you're not performing at the gig on them, when you're writing for them, it's someone who really knows how to play those instruments. So you, you can't help but be better. So having as many uh, levels of competency available in many directions, even if they're not all used at once, or even if one is used more than the other, but ultimately you win for that. You win, right. And so when you came out of college, you were a composition major. If you had just relied on composition to earn your living, because that's what your major was, you were a composition major, right. would you have had a career of 50 some odd years? Well, probably not. Everybody that I met who was a composition, a composer, I should say, at that time, of, of, of quote, for want of, better, want of a better term, serious music, they all taught. They taught it right. in, usually at universities. I think that's probably the same today. Yes, um, sure. That life is a very different life. And uh, not to uh, I sound like I'm I, I don't want to sound like I'm judging it because I'm not. It's just a different life than being a, a sideman. It's a different life than being a jazz musician or a studio musician. Uh, and it has it has everything to do again going back to what what do you really want to do in your life? What's what gives you the most satisfaction? What are you passionate about? Right. But coming out as a composition major, you pursued other areas and other avenues. I did. I did. It it wasn't. It, they weren't such conscious choices. They kind of. Uh, this is not a boast by any means. It's just sort of how life evolved you know I was playing a lot and I could play the piano and I could I could I could play in a lot of different styles and I could read and I was fortunate that way right. and uh, I have my dad to thank for that you know there's uh, everybody's different of course how they look at things um, it wasn't that I was so concerned with making a living he was concerned that I would be able to make a living. <laughs> of course. And because he had been through the school of hard knocks about being a musician. Being a musician's really rough. <laughs> it's, there's not too many people, I, I do want to mention this point, that there's not too many people in the big grand scheme of things that make their living doing it. And it's, he used to say, and I think it's true today, that it's a luxury to make your living at it. And I think that's probably even more true now than it's ever been. So no if, if you find something, it's all balanced. You know, the, the extreme would be, well, I just want to play jazz, and you wind up 
hardly making any money and not able to afford a house or even an apartment. And I know people, we, we probably both do, that have been that route. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I was always interested in other kinds of music besides. And I also wanted to have a house and a normal life. So right. all these things come into play. Right. You know? So you found your way through all these varying uh, ways. Let's change course for a second. Of course, you've had the unique... Um, experience of being friends and have and working in, in two of the three cases with three of the greatest jazz clarinet players yeah. in history. Yeah. I mean, intimate, good friends, colleague with Buddy DeFranco. Mm -hmm. Friends, knowledgeable relationship with Audie Shore. Mm -hmm. And friends and working relationship with Eddie Daniels. Right. Uh, I mean, and, and really, uh, I don't know of anyone who's, who, who, those three giants, I don't know anyone who encountered all of them in the way you have uh, as a friend and also as a, as a player uh, for, for Buddy and for Eddie. So let's talk about uh, Buddy first, uh, since he was one of your early influences, and then Definitely. you got a chance to play with yeah, me and Terry Gibbs. I did. Uh, how did that come about? And let's talk about Buddy and... Uh, for the young doublers, knowing about Benny Goodman, of course, Audie Shaw, Buddy DeFranco, Eddie Daniels. Now, th really, every doubler and every clarinet player should have good knowledge of their playing and their stuff because they yeah. are essential to the voice of the clarinet. Those are the guys, yeah. 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 So let's start with Buddy. And um, well, I was uh, somewhere after college, and there I I hadn't talked about this, but I got a five-night-a-week job playing in a little dive with uh, Dave Pike, the vibist, yes. which turned out to be just an incredibly valuable experience, not to mention lots of fun, too, and I learned so much working with him and the other musicians. But we were playing jazz five nights a week, and we played it at a... It's no longer here in L.A., but it was the main jazz club. We played at Dante's one night, and Buddy DeFranco was working in the valley and came in and introduced himself to me. And I couldn't believe the good fortune of even just meeting him. Uh, and then some years later, uh, I'm trying to remember how this happened, but I started working a little bit with Terry Gibbs, and he and Buddy had been working together a lot, and I wound up working, I remember the first week we worked uh, with, it was Buddy and Terry and Herb Ellis and Frank Cap and Chuck Berghofer. It was a, just an unbelievable band, and um, from then on, Buddy would call me to, to work with him, and I, I did a lot of work with him. Of course, he was on the road, and he lived in Montana and part of the year, and Florida, Florida part of the year. Panama City, yeah. But... Uh, I did get a chance to play with him a whole lot, and, and we just had a, a, a wonderful friendship and a wonderful uh, now, did musical you, relationship. Did you play clarinet for him a lot? I, I did a little bit, yeah. He always said, bring your clarinet. And it was like trying to avoid getting humiliated, you know. But <laughs> Now you, you hang in there pretty but, good. Uh, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, and it, it was always a lot of fun. But it was, uh, for me, I mean, I remember the first time playing with him, um, It's hard to describe in words, but uh, to hear that 
And he used to stand on the crook of the piano, so he'd be right near you and to hear what he was playing. And uh, <laughs> having heard all these records all my life, uh, such a thrill. And, and, and on top of that, as you know, he was one of the greatest people ever. Gen ever. Gentleman. Just ever. Uh, Cl class. Total class. Yeah. Um, I remember saying to him one night, uh, it was always, the, the solo order was always the same. It was Terry played the first solo, then Buddy would play, and then the <laughs> piano play, would play. So you had to follow him. I had to follow him, and I said, you know, and I meant it seriously, and this wasn't uh, uh, something I talked to him about trying to get a compliment at all, but it really was becoming... A real challenge, seemingly impossible challenge. And I said to him on a break, I said, you know, after you play, I said, everything that I'm playing sounds like nothing compared to what you, you have such a conception, such an original approach. And he did. Of course. He, he, he said, he up. gave me the greatest advice. He said, you cannot think that way. You have to play what you hear and believe it and play it. Kenny Burrell said the same thing. He said, the whole key is to play what you hear and believe it. And that's... And that's for any kind of music. And that's very challenging, though, when you're yeah. playing with one of your absolute heroes. Yeah. And yeah. who's at that level. Same thing with Milt Jackson. I worked, uh, remember working with him, getting a privilege of working with him and Ray Brown on a, on, a, on a... Well, we did a record, but we also did some live playing. And Ray Brown was standing next to me, and I was hearing these bass lines. And I, at <laughs> one you, point, I stopped. I thought, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And could you hear anything? Because his bass is the most resonant bass sound I ever heard in my it's life. Unbelievably great. And yeah. and when Milt would play one note, it would go right through you. You'd say, Oh, I. Those are some of the greatest music lessons you ever have. Right. If you can play with, if you get a chance to play with your heroes. Sure. <laughs> to the next clarinet hero, Artie Shaw. Right. Uh, I mean, a real, a real character. And uh, this, you met Artie well, when, he had, when he had already stopped playing. He right? had stopped playing, yeah. And uh, I got a call from uh, a drummer slash contractor here in town who's since passed away, but uh, Frank Kapp, and he was contracting the Glendale Symphony. And he said, we're scheduled to play the Artie Shaw Concerto for clarinet this summer. And Abe Most was supposed to do it. He was a wonderful clarinet player. Giant. Wonderful person, too. And he he can't do it. He said, could you do this? And so I said, well... Now, I want to just hold here for our viewers. Yeah. Now, you've heard Tom speak already throughout 
this thing about his piano playing, and I've kept talking about how wonderful a clarinet player. But obviously, other people have heard, heard you to be able to put to recommend you to play the Audi Shore Concerto and sub for Abe Most. That uh, every, everybody else was busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. And you were in New York. So. No, 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 no. That says something about the level of your playing and the way people perceived it. So it's not just, again, you... you well, thank you. you know, um, so that's, that I, in itself is a great honor. Well, I asked him, I said, how long have I got to prepare? <laughs> and um, he said, well, it's not for about two and a half months. And I said, well, I, yeah, I would like a shot at it. And um, so I woodshedded like crazy. And my dad had the music for it and also had the original 78 that my mom bought him for their second wedding anniversary in Chicago. So we listened to it, and, and uh, it went pretty well, I thought, and uh, that's where I met Artie. And uh, he was kind of a curmudgeon at first, but uh, later on uh, thought that I did a good job. So. And he came to rely on you a great deal toward the end of his life as, as a friend and a confidant. Yeah, he, he, he actually had plans. Um, I was telling Ken Popowski this story because he has a similar story about Benny Goodman that Artie wanted me to uh, write and play the clarinet for a woodwind quintet, a, a jazz hmm. setting of a woodwind quintet, and had spoken to a record company, and we were going to do a record. And I wound up doing a demo, and right after the demo, unfortunately, he passed away, so we never got to do it. Ken's story, I think, is that Benny wanted to record him. Yes, he recommended him to a record company. Yeah, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if Ken found that out till after Benny died. I'm, right, I think, I think he, is the I, way I, he told I think it. that's what he, I heard him say but, as well. Uh, anyway, I spent a lot of time with Artie uh, last, about the last 10 years of his life, actually, and uh, got to know him <coughs> really well. And, um, and you actually sort of introduced them or kept or got them together at, at times. I, I, Right, yeah. and uh, and certainly Audie was one of of uh, Buddy's heroes growing up as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember we, yeah, Buddy and his wife Joyce and I and Artie spent some time together. It was just fantastic. And now, what? How would you? Before we go on to Eddie, uh, Eddie Daniels, what? How would you describe the difference in their approach to playing the clarinet and and improvising, Buddy to Artie? Well. One thing is, is that it, it, it's uh, one thing that they had in common uh, is that they both sort of approached the clarinet as a saxophone in terms of their setups and the way they played it. Uh, and the first time I really thought about that or realized it was when Buddy told me about it. Huh. Uh, I always knew that Artie didn't sound like anybody else, at least to me he didn't. He had such a l lyrical tone and it was it was not a quote, legit clarinet sound by any right. means. And, and it's important to mention that Artie's <clears throat> first instrument was saxophone. Was the alto saxophone. And he was a magnificent yes. lead alto saxophonist. Uh, people, you know, because of his prowess on clarinet, people would know it yeah. uh, unless you, you know, really read about Artie and studied it. But a superb, exactly right. a superb lead alto player. You bet, you bet. And, 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 always, and kept the saxophone around. Yes, he did. Until the, he, uh, yeah. Yes, he did. That's right. So they had that sort of in common. Um, right. Where they differed, uh, and it was, uh, they were a generation, of course, apart, uh, 
But Artie uh, had an intellectualism to his playing, as did Buddy, but his, Artie's playing was informed by the period of which he was playing. And, but he stood out as a real original because of the content of his playing and the sound that he had. Whereas Buddy came along and adopted the language of the bebop period to the clarinet, which nobody really was doing. Some people say Tony Scott, but... Uh, not, not to the extent not, of not, Buddy. Not like Buddy did it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that, to me, was the, was the major difference. It's, it's an, an aesthetic difference. It's uh, when they play ballads, for example, Buddy played ballads beautifully, but it was a whole different feeling than when Artie would play a ballad. Right. And, uh, Artie had this original way of phrasing and the notes that he picked, and uh, it was, uh, by contrast to Benny Goodman, it was a totally different world. And, right. and Benny, of course, was magnificent. They both were. Yeah, they were just apple, totally different. Apples and oranges. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, uh, and how I met you was uh, through uh, your work with Eddie Daniels mm -hmm. uh, and playing with Eddie for many years and when you came to New York with him and then we were able to connect. Uh, but uh, Eddie being the modern uh, version, the last few generations, yeah. he's been the, the, the guy who really has kept the clarinet alive, influenced others and picked it up and, and you know, uh, been well recorded uh, and documented and uh, really has, you know, championed the jazz clarinet. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and as great a jazz saxophonist yeah. and magnificent flutist as he is, that service and keeping the clarinet alive is really, in the jazz world, I think Eddie has uh, really deserves a lot of credit Absolutely, here. absolutely. Uh, so uh, now what, in Eddie, Eddie's approach to the clarinet and to jazz improvising compared to Buddy and Audie, yeah. what what would the what are the differences? Well, again, I think it's it's uh, it's a product of his generation and uh, and and speaking the perhaps more current jazz language in terms of the phrasing, and his approach to the instrument is much more uh, based on a uh, again, for want of a better word, a classical uh, because that was his training, right. and um, so. He was able to combine this classical approach to playing the instrument, the sound, uh, with the the language of really of his era. So he didn't, and 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 again, uh, adopting a lot of the things that he did on the saxophone, on the clarinet. Right. So it was a it was a more modern approach, and uh, uh, and. And fantastic. I mean, and, and as a matter of fact, uh, he and Buddy were, were were good friends. Yes. And Buddy thought the exact same thing. He thought, well, this is the next guy now. Right. And uh, incorporating everything that's happened. Right. You know, uh, generally. He was he was so encouraging, Teddy. I remember, Absolutely. I, I remember seeing them together at uh, uh, clarinet conferences, and I remember once Eddie was still working in town, living in New York before he moved to Santa Fe. And, and I remember Buddy saying, as great as he is, I'd wish he'd put down the saxophone and flute because what he's going to do on clarinet is, is going to change absolutely. the world. And, yeah. and, and Eddie ultimately did and, that. And he did, absolutely. Yeah, and, you bet. Uh, and he did. You bet. Uh, yeah, Buddy, Buddy was that special. He yeah. recognized and wasn't afraid of someone being a competitor. No, no, no. Because, he welcomed it. Because it's not a, th it's not a threat. It's, right. not, it's, it's not anything except 
here's someone doing something different and and, and the continuation and great, great and truly great and if and one buddy would talk about anyone on any instrument if it was truly great that's what counted yeah and we recorded with art tatum amongst others right one, and that's an everybody. album all of our listeners should have yeah. uh, art tatum with buddy defranco yeah. was part of a verve quartet right series, series that's right. Uh, uh, of art tatum with various other masters yeah but absolutely the one with buddy defranco is definitely worth oh, it's wonderful. Uh, getting so here you've had this interesting career of working with great jazz artists like like buddy and eddie and uh lou tobacco and so forth Working in the studios, doing the sessions with great artists, doing film scores, uh, working on TV shows, writing for TV shows. Um, in all of these different styles and types of music that you've involved yourself, when you have a chance to be at home, and, and, maybe, and maybe there's never this moment anymore because I don't, with working with Tony Bennett for the last few years, you're so busy as well, but if you have a few moments at home and you want to listen to music, what are the musics, the styles, or the artists that you tend to gravitate to? Well, these days, it's primarily classical music. Um, Is it orchestral or chamber music? It's usually orchestral. orchestral. Um, I would say... Uh, Primarily the late uh, 19th century stuff, uh, Ravel and Debussy and uh, and, and Stravinsky. Um, I don't I don't listen as much as I should, um, but I try to keep kind of aware of what's going on uh, with regard to latest developments in jazz, and and also quote serious music. Um, but I find myself going back to that period especially uh, for uh, inspiration and for learning and right yeah and for our listeners if you had like the <clears throat> desert island list of recordings what are some of those that would jump out that you would that's a t that's a tough thing yeah, yeah of course there's, there's it, so much stuff um well it would include it would definitely include some jazz records it would include um some early Artie Shaw, some, uh, my favorite period of Benny Goodman would be the, around 44, 1945. Uh, again, Buddy DeFranco, the, uh, especially the early quartets with Sonny Clark. Um, yeah. uh, Brecker Brothers, Debussy, uh, you know, there's, there's so much that it would, I'd need a big truck for that desert island. I yeah. think. It's, it's pretty hard to pick one thing. But, you know, as you get older, uh, I think your tastes change, and, and in some ways they broaden, and in some ways you find yourself going back to stuff that you it's connected true. with early on. It, so it's, it's sort of tough to answer. Okay. And um, for the... I always ask this question uh, when I'm with... Uh, artists like you, uh, because again, so much of what I uh, hope to impart through the website and through this legacy series um, is to provide information for uh, especially younger players, people who are looking to enter the profession, mm -hmm. 
uh, and you've had such a broad uh, uh, and diverse career. But now knowing, and you're in the middle, still in the middle of your career, really, and you see what's happening uh, in the studio scenes, you see what's happening in the film industry, you've seen what's happening in the recording industry. How would you, uh, what, or rather, what advice would you uh, offer young musicians and young multi-instrumentalists looking to come into this industry at this point in time? Yeah. What, what would... Well, advice could you offer the advice is, a, is, is almost, I think, the same as I, when I used to teach. I, I, I taught at a, a few different colleges over the years, and the last one being UCLA. And I would get essentially the same question from the students. What am I going to do when I get out of here? Um, the difference now is that the context uh, has changed and the world has changed a lot and continues to change. The, the thing that's, of course, constant ab about life is change. I'm, I speak with reference to uh, the music business as I know it uh, has done a complete change since I entered it to where we are now. Um, I had the benefit of working a lot of different kinds of jobs that, that don't exist anymore, essentially. Playing shows, playing dances, playing all kinds of situations, um, and then recording work, uh, all kinds of different musics in the, in the recordings, writing. So I've, I'm very, very thankful and grateful to have had all these experiences. A lot of them for the most part, aren't available anymore. So when you, when you talk to young people and you give advice, my best advice uh, it, it consists of a couple different elements. Number one would be to find something in music uh, that, you, if, that you are passionate about. That's, that's number one. When that leaves, if that leaves you, and, or if you don't have that, then I, I feel that it's not the greatest business to enter because uh, that's always been the main attraction. Uh, you asked earlier about how did you decide to do it, I, and I said, well, I didn't really decide to do it. It, it, it just happened pretty naturally. And I think uh, to some degree that's kind of essential, that it sort of chooses you. In, to some degree. Now, on the other hand, you do have to be practical and you have to live in the world and you have to adapt to the world as it exists when you're entering this field. That so, sort of practicality. Yeah, practicality. Instead of right. the idealism in college, when you get out, sort of has right. to give way to practicality. Reality d dawns on you. And yes. you you've, got, you've got rent payments to pay and everything else. My advice uh, kind of remains the same, and that is to have a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of things you can do. The way technology is right now has made it somewhat easier to do that. Um, and the more things that you can do, the more chances you have of working. Uh, if you can, 
if you can make computer music, if you can use computer software to copy music, um, if you can, if you're a pianist and you can accompany a choir at a church, I mean, I'm think I'm trying to. There's so many diverse possibilities within the world of music, but all of them uh, deserve to be considered. And the other thing is, is that the ego shouldn't enter into this. As jazz players, I grew up in a setting with a lot of the people that I worked with were extremely judgmental and opinionated. If you, uh, and I heard a story about Lenny Tristano that bears this out as a matter of fact, who was incredibly, his contributions are incredible. But he told one of his students who couldn't attend his, one of his classes on a Saturday night. Uh, he said, why can't you make it? He says, well, I have a job accompanying a singer. And he says, oh, well, you'll never be a serious musician. To me, that's very, very damaging and very wrong. Right. Accompanying a singer, playing for a church choir, using Finale or Sibelius to, to copy music, uh, making a track uh, that's going to be used on a show, whatever you're doing, they're all valid. Right. And, and one more point about all this that I think needs to be mentioned is, I said earlier that it's a luxury to make your living at it. It's a privilege to be a musician and to make a living at it. And if you're making a living playing your horn or doing something in music, that's pretty great. Yeah. And you got to be thankful. Right. And, and given the, you know, the nature of the changing work scene, yes. if you're still able to survive doing that today, that's right. It, that is something. Because remember, and I was told this by the musicians who were working in the 40s and 50s, that there was so much work that some of these guys just dropped out of high school because it was, it was easy. I mean, you, they needed musicians. They needed musicians. They, they, it was a, there was a paucity right. of musicians. Right. And, and, and uh, so, you know, they could gain experience while working, and it was a natural thing being a musician. Today, that, that doesn't exist. No, it's different now. Yeah, and... Uh, and the culture I, is different now. The cult, right, the type of music people are expecting, what, what mass media is presenting. Right. Uh, and what people even know about or feel comfortable with. Well, it's a different and, and, yeah, and not to get too existential or philosophical or whatever. I've always believed, though, that, and this is probably going to sound corny, but, and I don't mean it to be corny, but the world needs musicians. The world needs music. And perhaps now more than ever, what's going on in the world. And also, I believe that if, you're, if you've been given a talent, <clears throat> whatever it is, that comes with a responsibility to use and develop it. And uh, Charlie Parker said, there's no boundary line to art. There's no boundary line to art, <clears throat> and there's no limit to the growth and potential when you're given a gift like this. So it's, it's a combination of being practical, but it's also a combination, uh, but also of realizing that you're blessed to be grateful and uh, you know, do the best you can and, and, and become the best that you can. That's and right. if you do those things, I, I feel you'll be okay. It's, 
you know, people used to say, well, it's a big pie and you can have a slice of the pie if you're really good. Well, the pie is shrinking and it's changing. <laughs> you know, it's not so round anymore either. <laughs> but if you're really great at what you do and you believe it, you'll, you'll be okay. Yeah, but the key is you really have to be good. You have to be and really great. And you have great. to be passionate and you have to not be afraid of working. That's true. And you got to work at it. And you don't stop. Once you get to a certain level, you don't stop. You keep going. Yeah, yeah. In the earlier interview I had with Dan Higgins, he talked about the fact that at 35 years old, having established himself in L.A. and working well, he realized his flute playing was not satisfactory for him. And he decided to really focus for a few years Really, and, and let some of the other instruments not get the attention on his flute playing. Mm -hmm. And he went to study with a classical flutist. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, it, it, I found that to be very interesting and revealing. Absolutely. You know, but it, it's that. Never be afraid of learning more and studying more yeah. and working hard because we're lucky. Like yeah, I said, we're, to be music. We're blessed. Louis Belson used to say, I get to practice today. <laughs> and that's, that's a wonderful statement. You know, I practice every day. Um, I have to, uh, and I feel like I'm, I'm making some progress, and that's not false humility. That's just the way it is, and uh, so yeah, yeah, it's a blessing. Thank Thanks, you very man. much. Appreciate it. Blessing to know you, Thank man. You. Same here. Back at you. All right. Thank you. And uh, Tom's going to play for a little, a little clarinet for us, just to show you he's not just a great pianist, uh, and and. You know, you'll hear, or you've heard already, some of the uh, musical inserts with him playing saxophone. But um, you need to hear him play clarinet to understand uh, the depth of his artistry. Thank you for watching. <laughs>
That was, um, what's the name of that song? It Could Happen to You. That's right, I forgot. <laughs> I was so busy trying to play it. Um, when I try to approach uh, learning a tune, uh, I try to learn it in all the keys, first of all. And then I try to pick a key that I feel a connection with. So whether it be piano, clarinet, or saxophone, the same kind of principles apply. Uh, the idea of learning it in different keys gets you into different places uh, that, that uh, you might not go ordinarily and um, enables you to play and uh, connect all the progressions that you might not encounter otherwise. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. Buddy DeFranco told a story to me a long time ago about uh, encountering Charlie Parker in New York, and uh, it was a great story. He said he had been, he, Buddy DeFranco, that is, had been working on All the Things You Are, and uh, had it really under his fingers and felt good about it. So when Charlie Parker came in, and he was, Charlie Parker had told him he was going to sit in with him one night, and sure enough, he showed up, and uh, Charlie Parker said, what do you want to play? And... Uh, but he said, well, how about all the things you are? He felt real comfortable about that. And uh, Charlie Parker said, okay, D natural, and counted it off. Now, for those of you who don't know, all the things you are is always in the key of A flat. And it's got a lot of different harmony in it. It goes a lot of different places. It's pretty difficult tune to play. So to play it in D without ever having practiced that was pretty amazing. But... After they got through playing, Charlie Parker said, I'm sorry about that key, but he said, you really got to know everything in every key. And I thought that was a great lesson. Uh, so that's one thing, is to learn all the songs that you're working on uh, in all the keys. Um, the other thing is to make the connections from chord to chord, uh, practice those individually, and then, and then start them as building blocks. So in other words, if I'm going to play D minor 7 to G7, I'll just work on that for a while. Then I would say, what are the next two chords if you're working on a tune, let's say, Let's say it's D minor 7 to G7 to C minor. So you might want to go. And what you want to do when you're playing a single line instrument is have enough of a balance of including the thirds of the chords and resolving to the thirds of the chords to denote what harmony you're implying. So in other words, you can play in and outside of the changes, what they call inside and outside, uh, but you still have to imply those changes. When you hear Sonny Rollins play, for example, the trio recordings he did at the Village Vanguard, it's, there's no piano. Uh, but you can always tell what changes he's implying, what chords he's playing, and what song he's implying by the nature of those chords. So let's continue this one other step, and let's say it's D minor 7, C minor to F7. So you could set up a routine, and you just work on those, keep 
connecting those chords. Etc. Etc. So you go through these chords and you keep and keep doing it. One thing when you have your practice routine that I've found that's beneficial is, um, and this Bill Evans talked about this, is uh, when you're working on a song, whether and, and if you're just dissecting it like we were just talking about four chords at a time maybe, and then you get to the point where you're working on the song in its entirety. I, I usually use a metronome to keep myself really honest with the time, but also you keep playing it, keep playing it, keep playing it, imp improvising on it over and over and over again until you feel like you've got nothing else to play. And then take a little break. Take 10 minutes, get a cup of coffee, whatever. Then come back and do it again. And the idea of that is uh, you'll get tired of what you're playing and what you're hearing. That's what you want. You want to get tired of hearing yourself playing the same licks. That's going to make you play different phrases and different connections to those chord changes. And you'll find that it really uh, transcends your solos then. Because you're not going to play what you know or what's comfortable. You're going to start really improvising. So I think that's a really good technique to do so. So good luck to all of you. <laughs>